Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because they think you're neat. People who listen to the Cracked Podcast have all kinds of things going on or things they're just interested in. You can build an entire website around that so these neat things about you live online. Wouldn't that be cool? Launch your passion project, showcase your work, show off your writing, or just be you with a unique website and a unique domain. Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters, right? But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and you embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also going to play you something that was the product of professional movie composers working hundreds of hours, focus groups coming in and listening to it, neuro research being part of it. It won a contest with over 200 submissions. Here is that work of art. Yep, that's it. There we go. That is the Visa signature sound. And it's something they're using uh, for mobile payments now. That signature sound. Let's listen to that work again. Yep, there you go. That's it. And uh, we had a, a great article on Cracked by Jordan Breeding, and it is called Five Weird Realities of Composing Music for Movies and Ads. And Jordan spoke to many people, including Jonathan David Russell, who is uh, mainly a composer of scores for indie movies, but he won a competition with Visa to put that together. And you would think maybe it's strange that massive corporations are putting together all of the resources they can to get two notes right. But the thing is, our brains are very, very responsive to even the tiniest differences in music. It influences all kinds of things we do. And that's what we're talking about today. The topic is weird ways music pranks the human brain. Uh, some of the pranks are positive. Some are negative. All of them are very, very fun to me. And we're joined by a very fun guest. Jamie Brew is a comedy writer from places like Clickhole. He's an artificial intelligence experimenter, and he's a returning guest. If you remember an episode we did before, of course we will footnote it so you can hear it too. It's an episode where we talk to the team from Botnik, which is a comedy website that is using algorithms and predictive text to write comedy for humans. It's robots and people writing for people, and it's very fun. They did a fake new Harry Potter chapter that took the internet by storm. They've done all kinds of other work, and now they're putting something together called The Songularity. The Songularity is an entire album of parody songs written with predictive text and algorithms and bringing in other blocks of material. It's great. There's a footnote to it. You can find it at thesongularity.com. And I am really excited to talk to him about this topic because he has a unique expertise. He's a comedy writer. He's also way into automation. And today we're talking about how the human brain is kind of a thing that puppets us. We're a little bit automated by how our brain reacts to things and decides about things. And music is extremely powerful in that way. It's really fun. It's really sciencey. And I think we have a good time of it. 
Why don't you have a good time listening to it? Please sit back or sit there confident that you're too smart to be pranked by your own brain, even though you're drinking a very, very expensive wine that you bought because of Tchaikovsky. Anyway, please enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jamie Brew. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. You guys at Botnik made a Coachella poster that's just one of my favorite uh, internet images, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll footnote it for people so they can see it. But how did that come together? So Coachella was coming up. Someone in the Botnik ranks knew about Coachella and thought this would be a good visual format that everyone knows about, that we could rip out its guts and put in new computer-generated guts. And we tried for that poster a new method that we hadn't really used a lot before, which is to use a computer program called a neural network that scans a bunch of text and learns about the character sequences. So it just learns which letters come after other letters most frequently. (laughs) And our normal methods of generating words are already pretty dumb, but neural nets don't even know about full words. They're just going down to letter by letter prediction of the next most likely letters in a word yeah and band names are fertile ground for this i guess because they don't have such a high bar of of making sense in the first place so i think it's easy to believe that just about anything is a band name and what we did was we had this neural net spit out thousands and thousands of band names and then we went through it as a group and picked out some of the bands that seemed most promising or that they would have the yeah. most, yeah, the, the longest careers. And uh, we put them on this poster. Yeah, I love that it automates down to the letter. I, I didn't know that about it. That's the best because this uh, poster here, the headliners, if people don't know about Coachella, it's usually a three day festival with three headliners and then a, about a billion bands below them. And so the headliners for this version of it are Fanch, One of Pig and Lil Hack, which they they all are kind of uncanny. They feel real. Like as I look down this, I would believe there's a band called John Party Times Four or a band called Bushfuck, uh, <laughs> because I already listened to bands like Portugal the Man, uh, His Golden Messenger, you know, just lots of bands that have real names, but they just kind of mean whatever people feel like. Yeah, they feel as real to me as most bands that I encounter feel to me, <laughs> which is very real. I think bands are, they're real. Well, and I, and I like this, too, as a sideway into kind of the, the main thing we're talking about today, which is the ways that music can prank the human brain. And I feel like much like band names can just feel real if a neural network spits them out letter by letter, uh, our brains will fall for a lot. They, they will be on board for just about anything music wants them to be on board for. Is that is that creepy? I don't know. I, I don't know how to feel about it exactly. Uh, I think music is just, it's really impressive. It's doing a lot of stuff all at once. And so I'm ready to be pranked when there's so much going on. If one of the parts of it isn't quite right, that's fine. And I think that's probably a rabbit hole that leads to uh it leads to bad things for me if i trust music too much right you're gonna be like pants by music or it's gonna like candid camera you somehow uh, just going about your day yeah and it's everywhere 
There's music in the cities that we walk around in. There's music in the words we speak to each other. There's a really loose definition of music that I think people like to use when they're speaking poetically. So there's that. Uh, it's amorphous oh, yeah. in that way too. You know, people say the music of New York. That's interesting. I don't. I don't hear a lot of people say that. But I had a professor once who he he was an old jazz musician and he was also teaching uh, comedy TV writing. So he's had quite a life. And he expressed his idea that you can look at basically any stand-up comedian and look at it like music, like just each of them are playing their instrument in their way where there are specific consistent rhythms that you get used to. I guess cities are like that too and so many other things. Yeah, I think music is, it. it's really inviting for someone who wants to make a comparison between their art form and some other art form because once you have enough experience you feel at ease enough, I bet you start thinking, this is really easy. And this is, I'm really just fitting a few of the same simple pieces together. There's a formula to this. It's so obvious yeah. in music that there's only 12 notes that we really use in the melody. That leads us into a fun example here. Got this one from a great cracked article called Five Ways Your Taste in Music is Scientifically Programmed by Christy Harrison and Chris Rademile. I learned from it that our brains are sort of hardwired to recognize musical notes as sad or happy. And I feel like on the face of it, that sounds just sort of normal. But like you say, Jamie, music it all boils down to just a handful of notes, and that's all we've got. There have been various studies done, and then also just our own experiences testing it out. Oddly, major and minor keys will have extremely clear moods to us, even though the difference between a major and minor key is literally three notes. That's it. I feel sad when I listen to music that's trying to be sad. I think it seems like it just works. And maybe it has something to do with whether or not it fits together or whether or not you're able to figure out what's going on. If you're really confident that you have a piece of music figured out and then it throws a note at you that you weren't expecting... That's jarring, and it's jarring maybe in like a, a smaller way than it is when you think your life is figured out and life throws something unexpectedly at you. Right, but it's still it's <laughs> still throws you for a loop. Like you say, it's a smaller effect than some huge life event. But if I the more I think about it, it feels bigger than it should be. Like it's just notes, it's just tones at a pitch, but it is it, completely jarring and weird. Uh, and let's let's get jarring right now. Because uh, we've got a clip here of some joker on YouTube has uh, sat down at a piano and they've taken Fur Elise by Beethoven, uh, which is a song I, I think all of you listening at home know. And, and if you don't, you'll hear it and you'll be like, oh, yeah, you know. Um, but here is him playing the song in its actual key. Uh, I'll talk over it a little bit because you know it. Uh, but this is him playing it in the key of A minor. And uh, yep, recognizable, right? Everybody knows this song. <laughs> He's some joker on YouTube. He doesn't need the compliments. He's fine. Uh, so anyway, yeah, very good. now uh, here he goes. <laughs> and now what we're hearing is the I'm song in A up. major. I'm not a standing and it sounds so weird. And now he switches back to A minor so we can all feel good again. Uh, 
But that is so strange to me because uh, the only difference between A major and A minor is that uh, is three notes. A major has C sharp, F sharp, and G sharp. A minor flips those, I believe, to all C natural, F natural, G uh, natural. Um, and that's all it takes to make that song sound completely bizarre to me, right? It's it's so weird that our brains can make that flip on so little. Right, yeah. When you only have a handful of notes even going on in the first place and you switch three of them, it, it's like putting it in a whole different language. And yeah, it, it sounds happier. It sounds like a completely different song. Well, there's there's science about it that sort of argues one way or the other. How much do you think like when we hear major and we think happier, it's like partly our brains recognizing it, but do you think maybe there's also a cultural component? Like I feel like we're used like, to oh, every time I heard someone play something happy before, every time I heard someone play something major, it was in a happy context. And so I'm gonna remember those happy contexts. Yeah, I think yeah. that would be that would have been my first guess. But I think from reading the primer materials, it sounds like there's something more to it than that. Yeah, because it's um, there have been studies done with a group of people called the Simane people, who are a tribe in the Amazon rainforest, and so they are were relatively untouched by, you know, the like uh, Beethoven and television and so on that you and I have, and that group could both tell very easily that there was a strong difference between major and minor keys, but also the study didn't find that they put any sort of value judgment on them. They weren't like, oh, the minor one's definitely sadder, or the major one's definitely happier. They just definitely knew that they were listening to two different types of music. And so it's, I don't know, a lot of this psychology stuff is stuff where there's no total control group or total like vacuum you can do it in. Uh, so I just find that fascinating too, that it's sort of hard to pin down exactly how much is cultural or just flat out our brains tricking us. Yeah, it makes me want to live in a culture where it's the opposite and where minor is the thing you play at weddings and happy is the thing you play when the villain enters the frame. I, I want to see, <laughs> I want to see Star Wars with the themes reversed. <laughs> so when you have Luke zooming into the Death Star and triumphing, uh, you've got the Imperial March or whatever. <laughs> my my brain specifically jumped to Star Wars too. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I think it's just like the most, <laughs> it's the most over the top of like there's a good theme and there's a bad theme, and <laughs> maybe it's because it's such a it, it's such a new world that you need to be reminded these are the good people and these are the bad people uh but i think you've got you've got a lot of that going on and it's also like costuming cultural markers like darth vader is in head to toe black which is not evil on its face unless you live in i guess western culture would call it where where black is evil you know it's such a they're doing every single thing so on the nose it's great (laughs) it works that way when you're in a key in music and if one note is out of key, it sounds really weird. Well, let's uh, let's keep looking at things that just will puppet your brain if you hear them, right? Because we've got the incredible major minor key difference. But then uh, there's also something that has a lovely, lovely name called the appoggiatura. And that is a musical term basically for moving from dissonance to consonance. You, you briefly go into a note that doesn't fit. And, uh, and like you were just saying, Jamie, the brain immediately feels off balance if a single note is, is out of key or, or a different tone. And just over time, composers and music uh, songwriters have found that if you do an appoggiatura, if you move one note out of the key and then right back in, that 
gives people a level of comfort, but also it helps you write sad songs, uh, which is amazing. Yeah, it sounds like a great trick. Do we have do we have an example to play? Uh, yeah, we do. So there's um, one of the uh, just greatest singer songwriters of all time. His name's Kermit the Frog. And here's Kermit playing one part of the song Rainbow Connection. And listen to the middle part of the word connection, the, uh, the neck part. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dream. The neck part there, it, it kind of dips out, right? It's a little bit off. Yeah, when he goes dissonant, for a moment, I hate Kermit the Frog. And then he <laughs> wins me back with the harmonious finish <laughs> i feel like, i feel like that's how sam eagle listens to that song he's like so mad about <laughs> what the hell are you doing kermit you better be going somewhere with this <laughs> oh it was an appoggiatura <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh it comes up across all kinds of other music too uh in the the cracked article they draw on adele quite a bit uh the song someone like you basically constantly has appoggiaturas. And so that that sudden tension of going out and then back in is very powerful in a sad song or even um, Rainbow Connection is just sort of, you know, sort of mournful and sweet to me. It's not sad, sad. But songwriters have figured out over time that they can just do that in music to make us feel a certain way. And that's a single note difference. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. It's great. Yeah, I can't get enough appoggiatura. It was the one that the, the article mentioned from a while ago in an opera, um, the Tristan chord. Is this another example of appoggiatura, or am I jumping ahead? It might be. I I know very little about opera. I know only as much about opera as I read from this article and maybe one other. And there's this one chord that is famous in opera music and maybe classical music in general that is something called a half-diminished seventh. And when you get this half-diminished seventh, you've got all sorts of dissonance going on inside it. The famous use of this chord is when only part of that dissonance resolves, and you get a chord that sort of sounds good and feels like a step up, but it's still got weird stuff going on in there. And this is called the Tristan chord, because it was in an opera about Tristan and Isolde, if I'm saying that right. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Is that and yeah. that's a that's a Wagner opera. Now I think I'm remembering. That's so impressive to me because it seems to be a famous chord, and it's famous just for the notes that are in it. And like we were talking about before, when you only have a few notes to play with, and you're able to write a combination of those that becomes famous throughout history for being the weirdest combination of notes that still works. That's got to be something you're proud of if you're Wagner. Yeah, really. Well, and especially in an opera context where when I say I know very little about opera, I do know a lot about opera in the context of Bugs Bunny. And that opera, when they like when they use Barber of Seville or when they use uh, Wagner, uh, it's it's sort of matched very, very closely to all the action. And so Wagner must have been very pleased to come up with a chord that elicited such an emotional feeling when at the same time it needed to support a story. It must be incredibly effective in the story of whoever Tristan and Isolde are. Who could know? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think they were, they were in love. Yeah, probably. And that sounds something, right. something bad must have happened because that chord played. And... <laughs> Well, I, uh, and in, in the intro, um, I talked about the songularity, which is this great 
project you guys have coming together at Botnik. People should support it. Also, uh, one step back, uh, how much experience do you have with composing music, Jamie? Like, how much have you done that? Well, I've written a bunch of songs on guitar, and I tinker around with the piano sometimes, but I've never taken a composing course, so not that much. Uh, you know, I've yeah. written a lot of songs in the same way that anyone with a guitar that is just lying around and is sometimes in their room has written a lot of songs. And I took piano lessons as a kid. It it never really caught on that much. And then when I stopped taking piano lessons, I started liking playing piano more because there was no deadline. So <laughs> I was one of those kids. It's so strange how music is almost more appealing for just fooling around. And then when it when it gets serious, it's it's much harder. I think it's nice to have taken those lessons. I'm curious with the with the singularity who or which computer did the writing? Because these are parodies of songs, but also driven by algorithms in the way that uh, Botnik does so much of its comedy. Well, a lot of the songs are written using Voicebox, which is this same predictive text tool we use for many of our web things. It was what we used to write the Harry Potter chapter, and it's what we used to write a bunch of scripts. And that works really similarly to the predictive text feature on your phone, in that it suggests likely next words in the context of whatever source material you feed it. Um, right. With many of these Songularity songs, we're taking two genres or two source texts and combining them. So we'll ask it to suggest words that are likely in a 50-50 combination from Bob Dylan and negative Yelp reviews of restaurants. Or <laughs> the lead single was Morrissey plus Amazon customer reviews of the P90X workout system. Um, <laughs> there's a bunch of those mashups and then there are some songs that are written using other methods there's a neural net song in there where we trained it on a ton of country music and then just let it spit out a bunch of lines and sorted them by rhyme and fit together the lines that rhymed the most and seemed to make the most sense that's amazing well, and it also uh, as I hear that that sounds weirdly similar to um, apparently how a lot of just regular pop music has come together. Because in that, in that same Cracked article, uh, they look at something called the Million Song Data Set, which took basically all of the pop hits from 1955 to today and ran them, th sort of reverse ran them through an algorithm to check their timbral variety, which is how much uh, just sort of uh, different tone and, and pitch and melody is in the music. Uh, you could call it how interesting the music is. And not only did it find that songs would tend to match up with each other year to year, but also they've been getting less and less and less variety over time. Uh, the line basically peaks in the 1960s and then goes down to today. And it sort of suggests that consciously or not, everybody's writing to a formula or an algorithm as they've made pop music over the decades. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. It sounds like we're getting closer to the right song. We've been trying to write the correct <laughs> song for years and years, and we're probably getting really close. And so this just reaffirms my belief that the songularity is close, the time when we will be able to automatically generate songs that are better than any song we could write as a person. And we should keep plugging and keep trying to combine these different lyrics and uh, we should all invest in companies that are doing their part to bring about the singularity. I love the idea of us being done. That's the best. Uh <laughs> well, doesn't that sound great? <laughs> it would, I know, it like... would end the pain of the artist. 
Right. They've been screwing around like with pianos and guitars. It really hurts your fingers, you know, and then you have to figure out uh, like where to put Wile E. Coyote in the story. It's a whole deal. Yeah. Well, and then as we look at just sort of more ways music can kind of operate us, we, we looked at that million song data set just now. There's also a study that a Scientific American wrote up where the study found that brain scans can a little bit predict pop hits. They took a group of people and uh, loaded them up into MRI scanners and said, okay, let's see what happens. Uh, This was at Emory University. They were doing the study. And they took children and put them in an MRI scanner and had them listen to a big variety of basically potential future pop hits. And then they tracked the kids' brains and also uh, how the songs did over a three-year period. And they found that the songs that performed better with the public tended to stimulate the nucleus accumbens region of the brain, which is a is one study by one group of people. Also potentially amazing, right? They found the like button that makes us like music. It's always good to find a button that does something inside the brain. It's very exciting whenever someone discovers one of those. I I noticed in the article, it was full of disclaimers about, well, you know, a lot of these studies that find the miracle area of the brain that does this thing, they turn out to be methodologically flawed or something. But this one seems pretty good, Uh, but maybe not. But wouldn't it be cool? And having studied neuroscience or having studied cognitive neuroscience, I should be better equipped to tease apart (laughs) how credible this is. But uh, it's really exciting to think about. How deep have you gone in studying neuroscience? Well, I I studied it in undergraduate. So I got a degree in cognitive neuroscience, which is somewhere between psychology and neuroscience and mostly did behavioral stuff. So I didn't get deep into brain imaging, but got deep enough to know what this article disclaims and disclaims, which is be careful when there seems to be an area of the brain that is outrageously specific. I met a few people who studied something similar on an undergrad or grad level, and they the, all these articles give them the willies. They really, they really, really don't like it. They're like, no, we don't, we don't know where anything is located in the brain. Please don't say that. But also, this one study thinks maybe we found the button. It's a, it's an interesting field that I feel like we're still working out of exactly what triggers the brain where. But it is uh, as we look at other stuff here too. There there are interesting just sort of theories about neural pathways being key to the music we like, almost as an accident of timing or or just physical development, which is amazing. Yeah, there's uh, there's so many things going on in the brain. I think the, the willies is a good word to put to it. it I think that <laughs> the fear is like whenever we even look at something or hear something, there's, there's so much that happens that it's hard to pull apart. When I mentioned neural pathways before, uh, the same article picks out a thing that it might be brain architecture or it might just be cultural and, and it's it's hard to pin down. But a few people have theorized that our music preferences kind of get locked in, not just when we're young, but specifically right around age 14, which is quite specific, I feel. But there's a Columbia professor named David Haydu who's just looked kind of across the history of 20th century music and found that a lot of our biggest musicians, based on their age and also based on their own statements and interviews, happened to hear the right influential thing when they were 14 years old. 
and that kind of steered their whole career. Because in he did an article in the New York Times about it. He claimed that Elvis's first key hits were in 1955 and 1956, and those years lined up with the exact ages of Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Joan Baez, Brian Wilson, Lou Reed, Jimi Hendrix, and Jerry Garcia were all either 14 or 15 in 55 and 56. And so that worked out for them. And then he even cites Bob Dylan saying that the Elvis song Mystery Train in 1955 when he was 14 was a huge influence on him. Uh, And that also Paul McCartney had a dad who led jazz big bands and was way into the trumpet until he heard Heartbreak Hotel when he was 14 years old. And then it just flipped. And he was like, I'm done. I'm a rock musician now because my brain received it. That's a murderer's row of other musical influences. I wonder what the bumper years for the 2000s are. Yeah, I actually, I was trying to math that out and sitting around with it. And um, Kanye West has said that Tribe Called Quest was one of his biggest influences. And they put out their album Low End Theory when Kanye was 14, which is one of their biggest ones. Uh, And then Kanye put out Graduation in 2007, which is when people like Chance the Rapper and Vince Staples were 14. I was doing all kinds of like timeline stuff in, in, in my place. It was great. I guess we're due for the 808s and Heartbreaks wave to hit. Yeah, that 14-year-old benchmark resonates with me when I'm asked, well, what bands do you like? What are, what influences do you have in whatever music you've written? I think I cast around for a while and can't think of any bands, and then I say something that I was listening to when I was 14, which is usually The Strokes. I love The Strokes. With this age 14 thing, like if there is a brain architecture part to it, cognitive psychologist Daniel Levitin has said that Right around that age, we have a lot of just growth hormones from puberty and other things going on in the body that cause a lot of construction in the brain. You know, this is all very vague. They're all still figuring it out. But there could be some kind of architectural component, too. Either way, I feel like a lot of what we like musically is an accident of what culture was doing at that very, very specific age. It's it's sort of a, a weird... Like, like, what if you grow up when polka's peaking, you know? Then, then you're into polka. That's it. Done. Yeah, you're a kind of time capsule that gets to talk about one thing and tell future <laughs> generations what it used to be like back when Polka was cool. It's a weighty responsibility. That's a historian. <laughs> Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. And hey, you're, you know, you're great. Uh, we, we don't say it enough. Uh, more people should be. A lot of them are thinking it, but they're just not saying it out loud. Uh, partly because you may have headphones on, so they don't want to disturb you, uh, which is very polite of them. You're in a good space with those people. But enough about them. Let's get back to you. You can build a website with Squarespace that comes from a template created by a world-class designer, right? So it's something that they have made sure will look great and feel great for you on the internet, but you can also customize it to be exactly you. And that's the best of both worlds. That's exactly what you want. It only takes a few clicks to do it, too. There's not any kind of intensive coding or other things you would imagine a hacker doing, you know? No, you'll just build a Squarespace website in a very chill way that you'll enjoy. It's also optimized for mobile right out of the box, so the website will look good on people's phones, which is super critical these days. That's where people are using the internet. That might be where you are hearing this podcast. So you do that. You know other people do that, too. And Squarespace empowers millions of people to turn great ideas into something real. Why don't you be one of them in your own way? Isn't that great? 
Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash cracked, offer code cracked. Support for today's show comes from Amazon Prime Channels. Maybe you know about them from having Amazon Prime already, but if you don't, here's the thing. In addition to getting fast free shipping from Amazon, you can have great entertainment delivered to you instantly from their channels. And fun thing about that entertainment, that can include me. Uh, You know me from the Cracked Podcast. You also may know me from making videos for places like Cracked. And I made a show called Hilarious Helmet History that is on Amazon Prime channels. You can dial it up just like a show on any kind of streaming service and watch it right through with a great player and a great experience. And I love doing that show. I wear a fun helmet related to the historical period that I break down misconceptions about. For instance, the movie 300 told you that the Persian Empire was a bunch of crazy things. It's not. Why don't you find out what it actually is by watching Hilarious Helmet History and having a great time with me, that guy you know, Schmitty the Clam. Wouldn't that be fun? And Prime Video channels let you build whatever TV lineup you want from all kinds of premium and specialty services like Showtime, Stars, HBO, CBS All Access, Noggin, PBS Kids, PBS Masterpiece, Acorn TV, BritBox, and of course, Hilarious Helmet History from Cracked, starring Alex Schmidt. I know that's what I would watch if I was very focused on myself, but you should watch it because you're not me. And again, you can watch Prime Video Channels through the Prime subscription that you already have on over 650 connected devices or online at Amazon.com. So only pay for the channels you want with Prime Video Channels. Start your free trial of over 100 channels by visiting tryprimechannels.com slash cracked. That is tryprimechannels.com slash cracked to start your free trial of over 100 channels with Prime Video Channels. When we, we've hit a lot of like sort of broad things of how we work as people, there's also like very basic uh, just tricks that music can do. Uh, there's a cracked article here called The Five Weirdest Ways Music Can Mess with the Human Brain by C. Coville and Kathy Benjamin. And one thing they get into is food. It turns out the music that's playing can influence the food we eat. Jamie, do you feel that's true just in your own personal experience? Like when I go to restaurants, I feel like I don't notice it, but maybe it's going on. I don't notice it either, but I don't notice a lot of things. And I think music, as we've talked about before, it has plenty of avenues to try to lead you to things. So I wouldn't put it past music, that devil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we look at drinking, uh, like I, I don't drink a lot of wine. I'm not very into it, but people who do uh, really try to pick out, oh, it has this and that flavor or tone. And, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I swirl it around and I analyze it like a character in a film. And yeah. then, I, then I discover it, right? That's a whole thing. And uh, the BBC reported on a study where um, researchers, uh, also I love how some scientific studies feel like just elaborate pranks. Um, researchers took a group of people and they, had them try wines while one of four different kinds of music was played. They either heard Carmina Barana by Carl Orff, which is an incredibly heavy medieval uh, thing about like fate. You know, it's very, very harsh. Uh, They also listened to The Waltz of the Flowers from The Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky. They listened to Just Can't Get Enough by Nouvelle Vague, which is an upbeat piece. And then they listened to a piece called Slow Breakdown by Michael Brook, which is mellow and soft. And then people reported drastically different uh, characteristics of the wine they were drinking depending on which music they were listening to. 
Yeah, this makes sense. This is with the wine. Yeah, I, I would imagine that I I want my wine tasting to rhyme somehow with the music, whether that's by being a mellow and soft wine that go that pairs with a, a mellow and soft music. Right. Is that how it worked? Yeah, people would hear, for instance, powerful and heavy music of Carmina Barana, and then whatever wine they were drinking, they would be like, oh, this has a very heavy element to it. Oh, yeah. And they, they would do that swirl thing that makes you makes you seem like you know wine. The whole thing. Yeah, uh, music is very uh, confidence building. It lets you solidify your opinions about wine, I guess. And then uh, they also, the researchers took people aside afterward and gave them questionnaires uh, to just check whether they noticed what the music was that was playing. And people did not notice. They they uh, forgot or didn't pay attention. And then meanwhile, it was like puppeting their brain to make them think the wine tasted a certain way. We're such fools. Music... <laughs> In the contest between music and people, music has us. And also then with food, correct article, The Five Weirdest Things That Influence How Your Food Tastes by Adam Wares, uh, they have found that if a restaurant is playing very, very loud music, it makes it harder for our brains to tell whether the food is sweet or salty. It just tastes like kind of food in a, in a very, very capital F broad way, uh, which is amazing. And then also another study... Like, uh, well, uh, Jamie, you and I, like, what would be like ideal just music to eat food to, you think? Right? Like, if you could be eating anything uh, in a pleasant setting, uh, what would be like some nice music? What would be a good soundtrack? I would like a, a drum beat that is just once every beat. Like a, like a servant with a drum? Like, a, it's like a palace? Yeah, I'd like someone who's just <laughs> standing there hitting the drum once every beat, four beats a measure. <laughs> That sounds nice and simple. I'd, I'd also go with no music um, or the Beatles. Those are the three options. Yeah, I would go Beatles too, I think. They've done studies where they've found that if a restaurant plays relatively neutral music at a specific volume matching human conversation, which is 62 to 67 decibels, no one knows decibels. Just trust that that's human conversation level. It makes the food taste better. And so that's why in most sit-down restaurants, they will be playing music at like a pretty medium volume that you can kind of talk over, but also hear. Whether or not they know it, they're playing the appropriate uh, level of music to make you like their food more. It sounds really plausible. And it sounds like the more and more of these tricks that people discover, the more likely we'll all be to head toward the one song that's the average of all songs. <laughs> I, I can start to understand better the study that found music was converging or music was becoming more and more predictable. How often do you listen to just the radio? Because uh, I, I tend not to listen to like top 40 radio very often. I think it's almost only when I'm in my friend's cars. I think I rarely listen to the radio any other time, and I don't have a car myself, so that's like once a month. Yeah, right. It's also social, isn't it? I feel like I've been in cars with friends sometimes, and uh, they'll be playing just regular radio, and I'll wonder, like, do they want to listen to this, or are they just playing the music that we've kind of democratically agreed to? You know? Yeah, it's considerate <laughs> to play music that you think others will listen to. But if everyone starts acting that way, then I think that will that will be an averaging force too. Yeah. Well, because let's uh, this is one other clip here. Um, this was made by a site called Quartz, and they are uh, sort of dialing into one specific thing that's been happening lately in music, which is the millennial whoop. Uh, is the is the kind of fun name of it, and we will hear it in. I don't know, seven or eight songs in a row very quickly. Uh, here it is. Oh, 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 
it's recognizable, right? That like, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Taken without the backing track, it sounds like the noise of slow understanding. Like, oh, <laughs> oh. Like you're constantly getting new information and, and getting it. I love that. <laughs> The first one was California Girls by Katy Perry. I love the idea that it's a song about her discovering stuff about women from California. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, or in really broad strokes, discovering that the chorus is what needed to be here. The chorus feels right for this song. (laughs) Uh, I wonder how conscious the writers of the Millennial Whoop songs are of using that reference when i see an article about it it feels almost like the author of the article is saying you're all the same you millennials you fall into this pattern and i have your number Um, (laughs) but i think a more generous way of seeing it would be well that's just code for we're cool and we're young maybe maybe that's not that much more generous i don't know no i like it well i people should be more generous with the term millennial in general i feel like I, i only ever see it written up as code for like young jerks or, or like uh, some kind of negative tone. I really don't like it. That whoop and, and music, that's an interesting question you bring up of are composers aware of it? And I, I would tend to feel like they are aware of it just because we'll, we'll footnote this, this quartz video. It's great and short and, and breaks it down very well. In terms of the architecture of this whoop, it's sort of a triad. It's moving from the fifth note of the scale to the third note of the scale, back to the fifth, back to the third, back to the fifth, back to the third. And so that's such a straightforward musical structure to write that I would be surprised if composers are just kind of accidentally landing on it. You know, I feel like they either heard it in a song or figured it out and they were like, oh, this is a pleasant, very simple back and forth. Yeah, I always wonder about how often you would overlap melodies just by random chance. And I usually want to give people the benefit of the doubt because it seems so easy to do when you have such few places you can hit. It's obviously, in this case, it's become more common. I I guess it feels unconscious to me. I don't know. I I also don't know if these songwriters would stake any of their honor or uh, (laughs) if they would care (laughs) or if they would say, sure, yeah, I'm using that reference and uh, that's fine. I think I, I often come across songs that sound very similar in the melody. It seems very unintentional. I think you're right. And, and, and you're not just being charitable. Like you're also, it's, it's how this stuff works a lot. Well, I, I don't know about you, but also in comedy, I feel like either as I'm writing something or I see someone else tweeting something and then they find out there will just often be a similar joke in the world. There's all kinds of parallel thinking, it's called, happening all the time. Yeah, it comes up a lot in comedy. And if you think that the same joke can be made and happen independently, I think you've got to think the same thing happens for music. Yeah, actually, the last the last parallel joke I saw was somebody did a tweet where they said, I don't want to get too inside baseball, but... And then it was just a, an attached picture of a baseball cut in half. So you can see the core and the layers of it. So it's literally inside a baseball. And then somebody else popped up and said, oh, man, I hate to say this, but I did that. And then I think somebody else jumped in, too. So it was a cascading series of everybody thought of this literal inside baseball joke. Uh, and no one was nefarious. It's just how it went. Yeah. In comedy, it seems even clearer that it comes just from this coincidence was in the world and you found it. And it's a pun or it's a joke. There were a couple topics that had to do with noticing coincidences between different music. And I remembered that I had this document of 
oh, music amazing. that matches up with other music, even if it's just for a bar or two. And this is the kind of stuff that makes me think I should forgive everyone who seems to be copying another musician. First one on the list is Military Madness by Graham Nash of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. And Young, thank uh, you. Yeah, no, that's right. He was of both. <laughs> At he was in a time app, or yeah. another. <laughs> he was Graham Nash of Nash in my book. <laughs> so he has a song called Military Madness that begins with the, the melody. In an upstairs room in Blackpool. In an upstairs room in Blackpool. And that sounds to me very much like the opening line of So Fresh and So Clean by Outcast. <laughs> Ain't nobody dope as me. I'm. <laughs> and you know do, that do, 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 you know do, that yeah, Outkast wasn't thinking of Graham Nash when they wrote. Well, maybe they were. Maybe <laughs> I should level an accusation, but it really doesn't feel that way. It's also the kind of thing where I guess you never quite know. Too like, there's. Do you know that story about George Harrison and his song "My Sweet Lord," where? it may or may not have been subconsciously plagiarized and he he ended up just admitting it. He was like, maybe I got it there. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's it's never clear what the burden of proof is. What is What would it mean to do something subconsciously or semi-consciously? Yeah. I've listened to those songs. Yeah, they sound pretty similar. I wouldn't be surprised if he had heard that song and then unconsciously used the melody to compose the new one. It's the song He's So Fine by the Chiffons in 1963. And then George Harrison put out on his solo album, it was a song called My Sweet Lord in 1970. So, you know, they're somewhat close to each other in time. And a few months after Harrison's song came out, the publisher of He's So Fine sued. And the judge uh, found in 1976, he just, the judge said that Harrison subconsciously copied it. Uh, no intention there, but he just probably heard it and it probably snuck in there. And and what do you do? The brain is weird. That's that's quite a prank where you get sued and lose a case. That That's a big one. Yeah, I, I don't want to be legally pranked by anyone. <laughs> There's also an interesting thing that I feel is very applicable to the songularity because Daniel Levitin, who we mentioned before, he has a book called This Is Your Brain on Music. And he says that one amazing thing our brains can do, not only can they repeatedly enjoy these sort of things like the millennial whoop that keep coming up, they're also very, very good at noticing when timbral varieties line up. And that helps us understand parody songs. Like our brains are, when you think about it, pretty impressive that they can easily connect a parody of a song to the original song or the original musician. That's like pretty advanced work. Yeah, it, there's, a, there's a lot to ignore if you're going to just lock in on the things that's common between the parody and the original. And sometimes those qualities are really easy to define, but there's just a lot of them going on at once. So you can say... Well, what's happening when Weird Al writes a parody song? He's taking the melody and the rhythm and maybe some of the like the phonetic structure of the original song yeah. and then writing something else that has a totally new meaning and says something else entirely on top of it. And those first three things are enough to guide you back to the reference and the music itself, the instrumentation. Our brains also even go a step further with stuff like um, the Lonely Island jumps to mind. Like the song I'm on a boat 
is not quite a direct reference to anything. It's it's sort of a reference to the Big Pimpin' music video for this Jay Z song, but it's not it's not an A to B like we took Big Pimpin' and put in new lyrics. It's just here's the general vibe of this genre and the overall like emotional tone to it. And somehow it's a specific parody of all of it because our brains are cool. They're very neat. Yeah, you can go super abstract or you can go super concrete and you recognize both as a reference to something about this music you know about. And we've been doing at Botnik both of those kinds of things. We have one approach to song generation that is mostly what we use for the songularity, where we take the words from one source and some words from another, and we write a song that fits in a genre, like or fits in a musical style, but isn't a direct melody takeoff from Morrissey. So the Morrissey song is, it sounds kind of smitsy. It's got really amazing production from these studio musicians, Studio Meow Meow in Seattle, that they produced this song to sound exactly like the Smiths, but the words are about something else entirely. They're about this workout system. It's, it's Morrissey singing about a workout DVD. And you can go like that, where it's a kind of abstract style match, or you can take a literal song and then do what, when we do it algorithmically, we call, it, we call this approach the weird algorithm of just taking the melody of a song and switching in new words that match phonetically and metrically. And uh, that's a different way to go about it. That's amazing. I also, I feel like this stuff maybe makes us smarter too. It's like a positive prank, you know? Uh, (laughs) Like uh, I actually, I have a friend who they have a story where they were a kid and they would prank their parents by, their parents would ask them to clean their room and they would sort of hide in their room and pretend to be refusing to do it. And then they would secretly be cleaning their room and that was the reveal that, haha, I did clean my room, I gotcha. Uh, <laughs> which is a wonderful positive prank. And with music, there have been a few studies. There was one in 2010 at Northwestern where they found that uh, they took people who were expert musicians and people who had never played music and uh, sort of scanned them and studied them and found that the people who had learned to play music were better at processing speech And they were also less distracted by simple sounds around them when that happened. And so, I don't know, that's music kind of tricking them into being better communicators and more present people. Amazing. Great. Yeah. It's a even-handed trickster music. It it (laughs) takes away from us and it gives. Yeah. I like to think that music has been a positive trickster in my life. I like to think that by exposing myself to music, I've learned some lessons along the way too. That was just very sweet. I like that. Because, yeah, it is. It's like there's the sort of broad uh, emotional component, too. There's also a lot of stuff about music making us stronger and not just in a basic way. Uh, Well, like uh, like Jamie, when you work out, do you listen to music? I almost think of it as like I don't listen to pop music very much. So when I'm at the gym, I should use this as a, a chance to to research the current state of pop and become cooler by figuring out what what's popular right now and i guess uh it's a it's my way of not falling completely out of touch i I don't think it works it's like gym anthropology (laughs) 
Gym musicology. The music of the people who are at the gym. I do that with the TVs there sometimes, too. Like, I'll just see what people are watching, and I'll be like, oh, okay, Chip and Joanna Gaines are extremely popular. Now I know. Interesting. And I think subconsciously you think, <laughs> now I should I should make efforts to look a little more like these two people I just saw on TV. And then as far as that music you're listening to in the gym, there's all kinds of ways that music apparently helps us work out, according to various studies. For one thing, just having a beat to work out to means you have less cognitive load of figuring out a beat to move your body at. You can just let that happen, which I think sounds pretty, seems pretty intuitive hearing it. But it also is very, very good at decreasing how much pain we feel. Uh, another great positive prank. Thank you, music. Appreciate it. Yeah, I wonder how that works. I, I noticed that a lot of the music at the gym has uh, some theme around they didn't think I was going to be able to do it, and now I'm fighting through, and I'm stronger than ever before. And that seems very appropriate for the gym. That's, like, that's almost back to Wagner. Like, I've found the specific chord for how Tristan feels, but, <laughs> but, but uh, the gym is doing it. <laughs> Um, this is going to be out of date by the time this airs, but tonight in New York, we're doing a, a weird algorithm karaoke cover of Eye of the Tiger, where we switch out Eye of the Tiger for new lyrics about college admissions essays. <laughs> Those themes tie together there as well. I know I said in the intro, but folks, in the footnotes, you can check out this stuff, or at, le at least the parts that are online so far. It's great. There's also... um. In terms of like music making pain easier or stress easier, there's one study that uh, was reported in Time magazine where they found that people were experimenting with letting patients hear music when they were having unsedated brain surgeries. So like you're awake, but you're anesthetized and your brain is being is having surgery happen to it. And they found that a uh, thing that happened more frequently with people listening to music is that they would be so calm that they just kind of fell asleep, which is astounding to me. Like, I know it's a long surgery. I know you're just sitting there and not supposed to do anything, but falling asleep from just being extremely calm while your brain is being operated on. Maybe I just am not uh, in the world of brain surgery enough, but that seems astounding. Yeah, it sounds like there's a few characters in this story that are trying to prank the human brain, and music is only one of them. But maybe music <laughs> wins the day. I would not like to participate in this study. <laughs> oh, let them, let them poke around up there, man. What, maybe they find something. I would prefer not <laughs> to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the most polite way to turn down unnecessary brain surgery. That was great. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jamie Brew for uh, helping me pull together and pull apart all kinds of different songs. That was very fun, I think, to discover, especially that Graham Nash and Outkast might be related. I Now in my head, there's C-S-N-Y-O, right? That's what I want. I want that out there in the world. And also just the drama of that. That'd be very fun. Here's something else dramatic for you. Our footnotes are loaded with all kinds of cracked articles that we drew on today and other studies and research as well. Uh, also, The Songularity. If you go to thesongularity.com, you can contribute to their Kickstarter in exchange for a very fun, very soon album of uh, parody music. Uh, and Jamie mentioned a lot of the songs that they're doing. That Morrissey one is particularly fun. I highly recommend listening to it. We will also footnote that previous episode where we had Jamie Brew, Elle O'Brien, and Michael Fredrickson from 
the team at Botnik and we talked about their uh, fake Harry Potter chapter, which is just fantastic and lots of other things they're doing that tie together humanity and automation into something super positive. I think we're scared of automation all the time. It's nice to find out that it can also be an artistic tool for comedy. And that's what we talk about there. One other fun thing about Botnik, they do live shows of automated comedy. You can see them September 21st in Chicago. You can see them October 6th in Seattle, and you can see them October 19th in San Francisco. Join their mailing list to find out more. And when I say mailing list, I mean email. Why would I describe it like they're sending you letters? It's the future. Speaking of live shows, we did one this past weekend, and that was so fun. I I now feel like we did a better Emmys that only our friends in the audience know about. Uh, you will hear that show in the next few weeks in our feed. And thanks again to Dana Gould, Haley Mancini, and Demi Adejuibe for coming out and making that such a fun time. More info on more live shows of ours soon. And some more info on this show. Our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Devin Bryant and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space full of seemingly real people, some of whom are bots. Some of those whom are comedy writers from Botnik. It's it's turtles all the way down at this point, just robot turtles, uh, which would be fun. Anyway, you'll find my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates, my newsletter, and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.